Welcome to another episode of Business Leaders Podcast. And today we're joined with Ken Jensen from Aspenwood Capital by way of BAC, which is a well-known appliance business in Denver. Ken, thanks for taking the time and welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob. I'm looking forward to chatting a little bit and hopefully sharing some of my past that will help others to get some insight onto what happens with business leaders from time to time. Well, I appreciate it. You know, it's been quite the journey. I did a little background work and uh, tell me about how you kind of got started and how you ended up from growing up in a rural community to being at Aspenwood Capital. Well, I'm a, I'm a Montana boy. And, you know, the funny thing is my parents were always very involved in what we were doing and, and they wanted to have us learn about the business. And so we farmed and we ranched as well. And so about the time I was seven years old, I had a checkbook. And there was an initial lesson there that I thought as long as I had checks, I had money. But uh, when I wrote too many checks and I ran out of money, I got marched into the banker. And I always get a little queasy when I walk into a bank now because, you know, (laughs) he kind of, my dad kind of put me right in front of, you know, the man and said, hey, why'd you write more checks than you had money? And I said, well, I guess that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. So I learned early on not to overspend and get myself in hawk. So that was a good lesson to learn. But um, beyond that, you know, they would give us a couple cattle here or there, and then they would have calves, and you'd kind of be excited about the prospects of, you know, making sure those calves were born alive and making sure that if you had a little parcel of land they gave you that, you know, when you hauled that wheat in a truck to town on the back roads because you were only, you know, 10, 11 years old and sneaking into the elevator to dump the grain, but you were interested in how much protein it had and how much, you know, it was going to weigh and, and how many bushel the acre you were going to get because that was money in your pocket. So early on, I got pretty excited about how business worked and, and moving towards that. So, you know, got old enough to go to college and went to the University of Montana and, and ended up in business school. I think it's interesting about life that you you don't really know where you're going to end up, but sometimes you just go with the flow. And I had some friends that were in business school, and I'd taken some science courses and everything. And I was kind of interested in that, but business seemed to speak to me more. And so went through that and, and graduated and ended up like a lot of people in business end up doing is going to work for a finance company. And the first thing you get to do is collect. You know, you got to go get the money. And I was in a mobile home financing company by the name of Green Tree Acceptance. And and when the mobile homes are out there and people aren't paying, then then you got to go repossess the mobile home if they don't pay after a while. And then you have to go and get it refurbished with one of the local dealers. And I had three states, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And I know every nook and cranny of every one of those states. Small towns, medium-sized towns, whatever. But it was interesting trudging through four-foot snowbanks to get to a mobile home because nobody plowed that road anymore. And, and But you had to get up there. You had to inspect it and see what kind of condition it was in. And then just building relationships with those local dealers and figuring out how do you get these things refurbished, how do you get them moved, and that was my job for the first couple of years I was out of college. So when you were called in to collect, was it already done, or did you try to go get a payment? Oh, I tried to get payments. I The first thing that, first job I had was, I was on the phone, calling, you know, smiling and dialing, as they call it, and you're just asking people for money, left and right. That ended up being a big part of my career for a long time. But the, the funny thing that you learned about that is that, you know, most people, they want to pay. Some people can't. But if you're patient and you work with them and you don't beat them over the head and you build that relationship, more often than not, you're going to get more bees with honey than being, you know, abusive or yelling at anybody or anything like that because most of the time people care about what they're trying to accomplish. For you, when you were working, were you working typical 40-hour weeks in those days? or? Oh, my gosh. No. You know, 78 hours. I had, I had two cars, and I was driving 3,000 miles a month, and 
by the time I got done with that first company, I was I had two cars that each had over a hundred thousand miles on them, and you know I was pretty much living off the mileage <laughs> I was getting because my salary wasn't high; it was somewhere between you know fifteen and twenty thousand a year. So there wasn't a lot of extra money to go around. So now, were you married at the time? I was. I was. I grew up in the deep south, and and the manufactured home or mobile home seemed to be a tornado magnet. Oh yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I don't know if that was the way it was out in your neighborhood. But. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't up there, but it was more about getting cold in the winter and freezing pipes. And and one interesting story is I I had gone into one mobile home to repossess it at one point in time because the customer wasn't making the payments, and I had kind of a skeleton key so I could get into all these different trailers, as they call them. And it was the middle of the winter, and I opened the door, and there was a hole cut in the middle of the living room and there was a campfire on the ground keeping the place warm so you know people found ways to stay warm in the winter up there in montana <laughs> now nobody was around at that point in time but i think they knew i was coming because it was still fairly warm so you know from when you went from collection and then you moved your way up through the firm mm-hmm. and when you before you started coming here to do business what did they, you eventually end up doing at the lending institution that you were at? Well, at the lending institution, I, I moved on to another lending institution, which was in California. It was ITT Financial Services, and that's where I learned a little bit about loan sharking because they would send out those $2,000 checks in the mail and say, come on in, and then you'd give them two grand, and then you'd give them non-cash deferments around Fourth of July and Christmas, and then the interest would would bank up on that outstanding balance and then all of a sudden they would owe you more than what they started with and you need to be two years down the road. So it was a good lesson in understanding how interest can can kill you in a lot of ways. But I worked my way up in that organization to be branch manager and, and then I worked for another guy who had been there for a long time and he moved on to a bank. And so I ended up being in the banking industry with Citizens Bank down there and did a lot of Title I home improvement loans during the the boom of the real estate market down in California and had a lot of fun with that and just learned through that. And then my wife and I decided to get back to Denver because she had some brothers here. And so we moved back here. We'd had one child at that point in time. And then I went to work for a mortgage company for about a year. Then after that, I ended up kind of going back to the basics and I ran a route for a company by the name of GK Services and so that's delivering mats and and sure. uh, shop towels and things like that and the economy in Denver wasn't very good at that time I had applied for some banking jobs but I was going up against vice presidents and yeah, what year what year was this stuff. that was uh 89 sure so I worked my way up at GK it took me about 5 years to work my way up to be in general manager and Ran a very profitable and high-growth business there, and I was their general manager for the next eight years after that. And then uh, things kind of went sideways, and they decided they didn't like me much anymore, even though I was bringing in great numbers and everything. I guess they wanted to make a change. So I was booted, which was the best thing that ever happened in my life because I uh, ended up here at BAC, Builders Appliance Center, and... Came over here as their general manager and CFO. Mm-hmm. Worked for them for three years and then bought them out. When you came here, you had the lessons from the the early collection business, and then you had the lessons from ITT, and then you had the lessons from your route on on basically carpets and towels and so mm-hmm. on. on. On those lessons, what do you think that you learned there that you brought to the appliance business? Well, I learned a lot about budgeting because we were running a $25 million business at GK, 25 cents at a time or 50 cents at a time. So you you were really renting everything at a very low dollar amount, but we were doing 140,000 pounds of laundry every week to take back out to our customers. And I learned a lot about very specific budgeting around a, a large business and how important that was. At the same time, working my way up to general manager, I went through sales training, 
had a lot of great training with that corporation around just understanding sales process. You know, you had to be successful in sales and operations to move up. So I was able to really become kind of a chameleon to where I wasn't so set in one or the other in operations or sales. I had a very good blend of both. So it helped me to be a good general manager to put myself in people's shoes on each side of that aisle per se that kind of happens in business to where everybody says, well, salespeople aren't doing what they're supposed to do. So it makes it harder on operations. And then the salespeople say, well, operations isn't putting in the right systems to help us do our job well. Well, each side can have some beef, but really my specialty was bringing that together and helping everybody to understand each other's situation. Did you have tools or techniques that you used in those times? I uh, picked a lot of those tools up just from experience. Mm-hmm. The techniques around it was really just communication and sitting down with people and communicating with them and help them see what was happening in other departments. You can get your blinders on being in a certain position and within a company and, and not really understanding what other people are up against. I, I remember even here when I was working towards buying out the owners at BAC, which took me you know, nine or 10 months to do that, getting an SBA loan, all those kind of things, and putting that all together through a cash flow model to, to get a bank to really you know, feel good about doing that. But I remember wondering, well, these owners, what are they doing every day? You know, because they're never around. Well, I realized that very quickly that what they're doing is they're out there building those relationships and talking to people and making sure that they're answering the concerns that some clients may have or making sure that they have a strong relationship with some of the bigger builders that they have on the books and just doing that on a continual basis to make sure that you're out there and you're in front of them. You're the face of the company. And that's really, really important as far as making a business successful. Before we go too far further, and I want to come back to that just a little bit, but I did want to take, and if you know, if we get a little ways in here and I get carried away and I forget to to remind folks how they can reach out to you at Aspenwood Capital. Yeah. And and you know, website and email. So if they Yeah, the website is just simply www.aspenwoodcapital.com and my email is kjensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, at aspenwoodcapital.com. If you want to reach me by phone, you can reach me at 720-938-1042. If you want to chat, be sure to reach out to me. Yeah, I mean, And we'll come back later on and talk about Aspenwood Capital. I guess, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the folks that are out there running a business where they've got the customer relationship and they've got the sales force and they've got the freight guys and they've got the delivery guys. When you would orchestrate your week, what did your week look like? Did you have staff meetings on a regular basis? How did you take and make sure that the message of communication and client service was? I, I was always very careful to ha- not have too many committees or too many staff meetings, mm-hmm. but I would have one every week and it would be the same exact time every week. We would have it on Tuesday morning. We'd have a sales meeting to where we had all the salespeople together. We'd start that at 8.30. We'd have our staff meeting at 10 o'clock and that would be my morning during that week. The rest of the week would stack up in many different ways. A lot of times, you know, reviewing financials was that one week of the month where I'd take a couple of days and review it prior to the staff meeting, and then I would always share my financials with my staff. That was really, really important to me. I came to BAC, and they had this book, which was Jack Stack. It was called The Great Game of Business. And they wanted me to implement that. And I learned a lot from that because it was really taking the weaknesses or the parts of your business that weren't running really well and really concentrating on those pieces to get those up to up to a level to where you were satisfied with it. So, for example, if you had high accounts receivable numbers, you may incentivize everybody to understand that accounts receivable is everybody's job within the organization. So if everybody has a part in that, it's much easier to have an impact on it. So you you educate people on how they're going to impact or what their impact is on that. And if you're able to do that, you can have more of an impact on improving that within the business. 
And so you put little games around it, little incentives around it. You do profit sharing that is based on improvements in those areas. And you also work on helping people understand when things are good, you take really good care of them through that profit sharing. When things are not good, you can't afford to do that. So everybody's on the same page of trying to make sure that you're always performing well and doing well. You know, and, and I'm sure that you went to a number of trade association meetings and such in your industry. Did you find that that practice was common of sharing profitability? No, it's not very common. It's not very common in any industry to where owners share that information with their employees. You know, I didn't do 100%. I wasn't throwing salaries out there to where everybody knew what everybody else was making. But I gave people enough understanding of the incentives that were in there and how that would impact our financials. So, for example, like our pipeline, the level of our pipeline really was the injection of new business going into that pipeline was really the responsibility of everybody. And then the next part of it was our profitability on the bottom line. Those were the two options or the two variables within that bonus program to where if we built up a great pipeline and we were we were paying attention to profit and we had really strong profits on the bottom line, that's the way that they would maximize their bonuses. And it really was one of the things that was always hard for people to understand. Salespeople are always incentivized. They have commissions, all that kind of stuff. But how do you incentivize the people on the operations side? Well, I had an incentive program to where we built a pool up for that profit sharing and we split it evenly between all the employees in the company. The salespeople still had their commission plans and all that kind of stuff. The operations people still had their salaries and all that. But this was that extra bonus that they got twice a year around July when they want to be on vacation and around Christmas time when they want to buy people presents. And it was very successful. So you measured us. every six, six month yes. period. And when you were talking in your, in your meetings on a weekly basis, did you recap that or how frequently did you tell people progress? When we first started, we would talk about it in meetings and making sure it made sense. Mm-hmm. But after a while, we sent out a weekly email. Everybody understood it. They knew what it meant. And it would show everything was happening, the trending and everything, because you really have a buildup of that pool over a six-month period. So they see, here's the open orders, here's the profit, here's the amount that went in the pool during that week. And the pool would be built up every week by the pipeline, but then it would also be get another injection every month when we saw the bottom line profit of the company. And that was paid on closed business? Yeah. Not pipeline, but just closed closed, closed business. business. Yeah. yeah, you know it's it's interesting. In in you know I've talked to a number of other guys in business, and a great deal of them, they're one mind or the other. They either share everything or they don't share anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you talk about you know the person answering the phone at the front. You know, are they cheerful or are they face of the company or not? Yeah. You know, and how do you take and help them participate in? And the book you referenced was Great Game of Business by Jack Stack influential for you very yes you know so you know for for the listeners and stuff you go is that a is that a fairly old book or is that fairly new i would say it was probably written in the 80s and it was really about a um kind of it kind of tied back to my farming roots because it was like i think it was international harvester and it was out in the midwest i think it was oklahoma company and this jack stack had gone in there and I think he was either one of the owners or a consultant, but they had taken that company and it was in tough shape. And they kind of pulled everybody together and said, we're going to make this thing work. And we're going to figure out a way to make this thing work. And everybody got on a bandwagon and worked very hard in improving little pieces of the company one step at a time to bring it back and make it a successful company going forward. Incremental improvement. Yeah. You know, and I'll make sure that uh, I'll put that in the show notes. And I I would imagine that'll be found on Amazon. But, you know, for some of the folks that are looking at running their business and go, you know, how do I incentivize my my staff? And, you know, and how do I take and communicate the the vision of the company? You know, the weekly meetings that you do, the emails that go out, the six-month, where people, it's not so far down the road, they don't see it. Yeah. 
And for anybody in the business space, I think that's really important to communicate the vision. What was the spark that caused you to go from effectively working for other companies and then you came here as the CFO? What was that moment like when you went home and talked to your wife and go, hon, I think this makes some sense? I was talking to the minority owner. He was kind of the guy who had who had put up the original money for BAC and started in 93. And he was kind of handing over more and more ownership to the other owner. And he was kind of retired. He was driving around, you know, Red Cross, very philanthropic guy, helping people out and everything, which he ended up being one of my mentors as well, just seeing how he worked with people. And the funny thing was, is him and I kind of worked out a deal. And so I'd gone to my wife and said, well, Mike's ready to sell his company or his part. And she goes, well, I think we should go for it. And what that spark, I think, was, was that she actually was interested in going for it. But on top of that was I was 42 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of start to look at what your retirement's going to look like or, you know, if you're going to have anything at retirement. And I felt like I could be successful running a business and I could gain, you know, more wealth through that than working in a company day in, day out. And I also kind of had this little flip of the switch around 40 years old to where I wasn't really enjoying working for anybody anymore. And so I really was looking for some kind of a, not really a home run, but opportunity to be able to use my skills that I'd had in the past and, and move forward. And I was very, very fortunate to find this situation. It was coming from GA and K where it was a large corporation. I would probably be there forever, but because of the fact that we decided that it was no longer good for us to be together and we parted ways and, and they said, you need to move on. That was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I would actually recommend it for anybody in the world of jobs is that, you know, if a company and you don't click and you move on, it's not the end of the world. That's one of the big things that I learned because I would probably still be there. I'm a very loyal guy and I probably would still be there and I might not be happy. It's interesting. I think about that there's probably a feeling that you know that it's not working out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's usually not an enormous surprise. Right. And then, you know, you kind of go through and go, the process of what's next. There's a fair amount of uncertainty. Oh, you yeah. Know, and you have children and you have all the responsibilities that you have. And then you start thinking about, all right, I'm going to go into this particular career. And I suspect when you came here, you were looking to be the CFO. I was. I really didn't think that this was going to be an opportunity for me to buy the company. And when we did talk to the majority owner at that point in time, after we'd kind of had a deal going, his name was Scott. He said, well, I'm ready to get out. What year was that? That was 2005. So you bought the company entirely in what year? 2005. Well, that was 2004 because I started with them in 2002. 2004, I was working on a deal. They told me if anybody in this industry finds out that you're working on buying our business, it's done. It's over. And I really understand that now more than ever because too many things can happen. You know, you always want to keep your employees informed, but at the same time, you want to be smart about it too. And people make emotional decisions and they get scared, get scared, different things like that. So when you're working on all those things, it's kind of best to just keep it close to the chest and work through it because. Sometimes it's not going to work out anyway. So why broadcast it until it's really going to take place? You know, I, I'm thinking about the 2007 to 2009 time frame. Oh, I remember it well. Yeah. And I think about for you as you, you come into the business, you've got your SBA loan and you're feeling out who you've got with you and so on. And so can you describe the behavior of your market kind of from the 2005, six time frame, could you really tell things were starting to happen in 07? It was interesting because I never looked at permit numbers, things like that, that would have been so easy and accessible to me. Permit, new permit? Builder permits. Okay. You know, something that was the lifeblood of our business. Never looked at it. 
just never really got involved with these different companies that that do trends and looking at what's happening in the market and how that's going to affect you and everything. I would just look at, you know, hey, there's people coming in the door and we're doing pretty dang good. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, if I would have just done that, there were a couple acquisitions that I made in 2008 and 2009 that I would have never done. Mm-hmm. And one was in the Aspen area, Colorado, to where you, you have people that fly in every weekend in their personal Learjets. Would you ever think that that business would stop? Ordinarily, no. Right. But I they get thinking, scared too. Right. They do. And it was so interesting because I told my wife, I said, yeah, we have to do this acquisition because this will keep us in good standing with everybody and and it will be a nice piece of business that will be consistent forever because they will never stop buying. Well, I was very, very wrong because the permits in Aspen went from an average of 50 a month to one and then down to zero over that time period. So for for you, so you go housing permits, if you were somebody else and they were going to try to take and do that on a predictive or a reflective basis, where would you get the data from? There's Metro Study. There's different companies like that. There's companies out there that James Hardy does some studies as well. There's a lot of companies around to where you can get a lot of great information. You can even go onto county websites and know what the permit activity is and what it's related to, whether it's multifamily or single family or, you know, whatever that is. Um, so, you know, depending on how much you want to dig or if you want to pay somebody that has more of a company based around that, you have very good access to those numbers. So let's say that you're clicking along at, at 50 permits a month in the Aspen market and it's just going along. What would cause you to behave differently? How, what would that number have to drop to? If it would have dropped to... 25. 50% decline? Yeah. If I would have seen or understood what could happen, that would have that would have made me make decisions much differently. You know, I think for many that the 2007 to 2009 period wasn't in our vocabulary. No. If we were 300 years old, we'd have probably seen it multiple times. Maybe, yeah. You yeah. know, but it, we don't live long enough in many cases to see those. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I find it fascinating when you look at behavior and and how do you modify whether you purchase or expand or you know consolidate where you are things are really good and you go well maybe you should take really short my balance sheet you know and so so you're you're in you've got these acquisitions you've now participated in the great recession i think is the kindest thing they call well and we're in the middle of it and really you know we're feeling it and some good things happened out of the recession from looking at it from the standpoint of I was able to hire a couple of individuals that were very, very smart people. And we were more of a wholesale type operation. We were very dependent on builders. And I knew that I needed to get more into the retail side to where we were going to be able to have walk-ins, you know, for mm-hmm. people who were do-it-yourselfers or were doing things with a designer or, you know, just wanted to do home improvements, things like that. We needed to pull that market in from a cash flow basis. And so I was able to hire an individual, one individual that knew that market very well and how to market to those people because that was where he was working, was really in that retail sector. And then he had another individual that worked along with him that came along as well. And they kind of created a very, very strong management team because I can tell you before that, I wasn't very happy with my management team. I was having a hard time having those weekly staff meetings because things were so disruptive between a couple of individuals that I had on my staff. And so I wasn't really having very much fun. <laughs> and I had to make some hard decisions. I had to really kind of use the recession as a really good opportunity for me to move some people out on my management team and I had really had a clear understanding of that when I had a consultant come in and tell me what was going on with my management team and it was just that there was a lot of dysfunction Mm -hmm. a lot of people that were more interested in themselves than the team as a whole 
And when I brought in these other individuals, we trued up that management team and made it stronger. And at the same time, hired in strong salespeople because we had a very good reputation in the market. We had to make some very, very tough calls. Those acquisitions that we did in 07 and 08, we had to close those stores down in 9 and 10. And we didn't lose a lot of people. We lost some in those outlying areas, which was very, very painful. But at the same time, communicating and talking to the employees and telling them what we were doing and how we were doing it. We lost a couple people, but we gained some other people through the process. And we also had some very loyal people that are still with us today. I think about the collective angst at night as you're laying and waking up at whatever time of night you wake up and you think about what's going on. And as humans, we usually extrapolate to zero. Mm -hmm. Everything either goes to the moon or goes to zero. Yeah. For you, if the recession was the reason that you restructured your staff, if you had it to do over again, how much faster would you do that? At least a year earlier to where I knew I was just kind of letting it run Mm -hmm. and uh, wasn't doing anything about it. And I I was more worried about just getting through each day rather than making the tough decisions. And I've learned that through the years, when something's not working, you should really take action and and move on. Usually the toughest decision that you have to make is the one that will have the biggest impact Mm -hmm. on your business. Yes. You know, and... And And it might have the biggest positive impact is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think... I don't even know who said it, and I was listening to some the other day, and they said, what's on the other side of fear? And the answer is nothing. Right. And a lot of times, you know, we think about the fear. We think about what we're going to do or not do in the business. So you've come through the acquisition. You now have your team in place. You've gone through the 07, 08 two-store closing and adding basically another marketing side, which is the retail side. Right. When did you start to see the market turn? I think it slowly started to turn like the last half of 2011. Wow. That long. Yeah. And we went straight up and we've had a nice incline, upward incline ever since that that time. About June of 2011 is when when that happened. And it wasn't just tooth closings. It actually had five stores, so I ended up closing down four stores. And I went back to one location, which was this location. We had lost half of our revenues. We were at 25 million, we went down to 14 million. And when I sold the business, we were at 32 million in one location, which less overhead, less running, appliances to different locations and the whole thing that happens in appliances is you have to replace things on display floors and we had a display floor in every location because i love how things look i love design Mm -hmm. i love making sure when that customer walks in that they just love how things look and it it initiates this passion of i want that who's the buyer who's the buyer the husband or the wife uh you never know See, that's interesting. I see it it tips maybe a little bit to the wife, Uh but anymore, you cannot tell really until you're further into the sales process. And that's interesting thinking about how you would market, you know, and, and I think about, you know, for the folks that may be listening, this is, you know, we really need to expand our footprint. You know, we need to have another location and so on. And maybe the short answer is, you know, and from your example, maybe we just do a lot better at the location we're at. Yeah, I got to a point from a marketing standpoint because we started to do the retail thing. And and actually, even before the recession hit, we were doing some pretty dynamic things from a marketing standpoint. We had Curtis, um, which was, he was from Australia and he was a chef and he was a good looking guy. And so we did a fundraiser and we had him come in and he cooked dinner and everything and he's actually been on the apprentice and a couple things since then but we were doing some very dynamic marketing because i met a gentleman who was a great promoter he worked in my marketing department for a while before the recession and and just kind of opened my eyes to a whole new opportunity 
of how we could market this business. And, you know, in the past, you kind of looked at yellow pages or you did radio ads or you did magazines and different things like that. But what I did, and this is kind of the joke I tell, is that, you know, I, I was able to throw some pretty good parties in college. So I took my experience from college and I brought it into BAC to make it the best place with the best food, with the best drinks and everything for everybody who ever came to one of our events. And we really turned into a event center that just happened to sell appliances. How so, frequently did you do your marketing events? Oh, we probably had 20 a year. That's every other week. Yeah. That's yeah. every other week. Yeah. I always have a challenge in thinking about return on investment on marketing. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing an event and it probably is three to $5,000 event would be my guess. Right. You know, and so you've got your costs. How did you come back through and basically justify to yourself or be convinced that that marketing effort was, was hitting your bottom line? Well, we got better and better at getting people here. And it's kind of the whole adage of kill them with kindness. So when people came in here, people were excited about what we were doing. We would do fundraisers. We would do industry events. We would do different things like that. So you were drawing different people in. We had a holiday party last year, and we had 1,000 people here for the holiday party. And that's all on us. But you know what? We created a great venue for people to do business together. Mm -hmm. So I was very involved in the trades, all the trade associations, everything like that. I was very involved in charitable organizations, all those things. We never charge people to come in here and use our facility. They have to pay for the chef, and we do have an in-house chef as well. And all those things kind of built this ambiance around BAC that we always had the best food. And that's a big thing for people. It is, and, yeah. And we'd do Oktoberfest, and I would put on my lederhosen, and we would we just had fun. And it was about an organization to where, you know, you have fun. It's not about what you're selling or anything. It's just giving people an opportunity to come and have fellowship and be together and exchange cards and figure out how they're going to work together. And we created that venue here. And so... That return on investment was kind of the kill, kill them with kindness thing. And the other thing, we got better at it. Mm-hmm. And then we got vendors that were excited about it. So then they started to realize that if they were part of it, it was a good return on investment for them. So it cost me way less money. Yeah. So I ended up spending less money in marketing overall by having all these kitchens available and everything open to spending less in market dollars than I did when I was doing the age-old things of yellow pages, newspapers, magazines, all that kind of stuff. So it boded very well for for the growth of our business. You saw then from your marketing events, so 2011, things started to turn, and your marketing, was that in place before or after 11? We did some before, but then we started to do a lot more. When I hired these two individuals, it released me to be out and really be the face of BAC. And I also hired a business development person and she was very integral in being out there with me because we would have, we would be at every single event that we could possibly go to. So even around the holidays when there's all those events, well, we would always have our holiday party first, second Thursday in November. Yep. That's the start of the holiday season anymore because that's when BAC has their party. But after that, you would have like three or four events a night. So she might go to two here. I might go to a couple over here across town. And we may switch later in the evening. But we were out there and we were in front of people. And we were talking about BAC and our people and how well they're going to take care of you and how they're the best in the business and all those things that really helped us to kind of prop up that, that marketing strategy. Do you think that your ability to go out and you know and go to the social events, do you think that was honed early on? Certainly, I would imagine that's not a skill that was in a small town in Montana. You know, it kind of, in a way, it is. Really? I would say in a lot of ways, I can be introverted, but if it's the right thing to do for the business, 
I can get myself out there. And I was always able to talk to anybody. You know, it's kind of like one of the things that you worry about these days is, you know, or do people respect their elders? And that was one of those basic premises of, I was not the oldest person in the industry, but I had a lot of respect for the people that had been in this industry for a long time. And you know what? They'd probably been through a recession or two in their career. I could learn a lot from those people. And so having conversations like that, but also just not thinking about selling them, mm-hmm. but about building a relationship, having a conversation that is authentic, not having a conversation that's around what you what do you got going, what's what's going on out there. I never talk to people about that. I never talk to them about, you know, how many jobs they got going, all that kind of stuff. I never have that conversation. I don't have to. You know, it's interesting. And, you know, and, and for the folks that are listening, if they're wondering what's going on in the background, we happen to be at BAC in one of the restaurant venues. And I'm looking out and it's a gorgeous Colorado day. And there's a large garage door where this will open out into the parking lot right here. So designed for the get-togethers, absolutely. So if you hear some noise in the background, it's just BAC doing business. And that's a good thing. So that's a good thing. That's a good yes. thing. You know, so I, I think about, so you've gone through 2011, you've ramped up, and now you're heading in to 14 and 15. And at some point, a purchaser showed up. Were you thinking about selling? I was thinking about it because I had seen that I knew what the growth had been since the inception of the business in 93. I'd seen all those numbers. And there was this pent-up demand coming out of the recession that was unbelievable because we had had double-digit growth a couple times in the whole history of the company. And that was maybe 11%, and we were growing 25%, 30%. And I went home to my wife and I said, you know what, time to sell. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah. You know, you sell on the, on the upswing when things are good. And I was, I was ready. I was ready to move on to something else. And the hardest thing for us, it took us about a year to really decide whether to do it because we were concerned about the employees. We had a great relationship with the employees, and we cared deeply about them, and they were family. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things that that was probably one of the toughest things, toughest decisions I ever had to make in my life. But at the same time, you look at that American dream and you look at, you know, I couldn't work and make the paycheck that I was making for the rest of my life and save 100% of it and have as much money as I was able to get for the business. So it, it had to be a logical decision rather than an emotional decision. Hard to divorce the two. Yeah. Hard to do. It is. You know, and, and I think about, you know, as if somebody's out there and they're thinking about selling their business, you know, and, and I think that's the business that you're in mm-hmm. now. Yes. And With so, Aspen Wood. Yeah. Right. And so you've been through the emotional hoops. Right. You know, right thing to do. What about my help? What about the, the employees that are family members? And, you know, I'm selling my child, by the way. And, you know, and for the folks out there that are considering either purchasing a business or selling a business... From the selling a business standpoint, what advice would you give to that potential business seller? Well, I, th- I think the most important thing is that you have to take time to think through it. I don't think that anybody has really paid a lot of attention to the people in that position in previous years. I'm trying to change that with, with Aspenwood and with being part of the Seller Readiness Advisory Committee that I'm part of where there's other people around Denver that are involved in different ways in in selling your business. But understanding that it is emotional and it is going to affect you, it's going to affect your family, but it's also going to affect your employees and all those things around it is I can't give you specific advice because it's different for everybody. Uh-huh. But I think it needs to be part of the decision. It can't be something that's just left uncommunicated or unthought about. It's got to be something that you take as being very, very important 
in making sure that you really understand what are you going to do afterwards mm-hmm. and and really exploring that with somebody. I can certainly refer you to different people that can help you really explore that. One of the people that I work with is a family psychologist. And so she really gets into really helping you understand how you're going to react based on some conversations and some questionnaires that you answer and things like that about what your tendencies are and how you're going to react to that change in life. And also planning, knowing how much you're going to pay in taxes. What are you going to end up with at the end of the day? Because if you all of a sudden go through the whole process and then you're writing a check to the IRS and you go, oh my God, I didn't know what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I really want to help people through. And the other thing I want to help people through is reaching the goals that they're trying to achieve. And if that's five years down the road, 10 years down the road, working that process now, somebody said at one point in time, as soon as you buy a business, you should plan on your exit strategy from day one. Mm-hmm. And I really believe in that. You know, for, for the, the business owner out there that's contemplating it, you know, for you, what resources did you use to try to determine what an appropriate price for your business was or competitive price? I had a valuation done. I didn't use a lot of other real resources other than that. I did have my accountant, who I trust emphatically, who also is a businessman. I have my mergers and acquisitions attorney that I used not only for when I bought my business, but when I sold my my business to really understand what other people had been through and understanding the tax implications. But it was interesting for the valuation. I had a number in my head of what I felt like I was going to need. And it came in very close to that. And it was some multiple of uh, EBITDA or, or... Yeah, in a way, it was, uh, depending on the time, because it was interesting, We everything worked out so well to where we had projections going through the end of 2015. And really, we made the transaction in March of 2015. But really, the whole process took over a year to happen. So when you have those projections that started middle of 13 and you're hitting all those numbers. And I, I thought it was going to be a stretch to hit those numbers. And we were able to hit right on cue every single one of those numbers. So it made it fairly easy to work through the transition because the angst about not hitting your goals or having somebody come back and go, well, you're not hitting the goals. We're going to reduce the price that we're going to pay you and all those kind of things didn't happen. Everything was just kind of on cue. So it just really was fortunate to have that happening and have the right market for that to happen. So when we come back to a multiple, if you did it based on where I was at when I decided to sell and we signed the offering memorandum or where we were at at the end of that, it was probably somewhere between four to seven multiple. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think about, you know, trying to take and hit those numbers, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of go, well, if I'm doing a good job, I should get paid for it. And if I don't do a good job, I'll get paid less for it. Right. Yeah. We've been talking for a while and, you know, I appreciate it. And I hear the business going on in the background, which is awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and it's nice I, to be back. You I know, I've been back for a week or so. <laughs> <laughs> well, separation anxiety, yeah. nothing to it. You know, I, I think about the next day when you woke up and it was done. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you're sitting there going, like, could you describe the emotions that you had the day afterwards or the week after? I had agreed to a two-year contract to help through the transition. So when the day closed, I felt really good about it. Mm-hmm. I did. I felt like it was fair. I felt like we'd done the right thing. The hardest thing was when we announced it to the employees. And they freaked out because we were very close. And some people walked out, went home. You know, we we had like an evening dinner and we told them about it and we had 50 employees and, and it was a shock. They were truly shocked. The management team already knew, but I think they felt like they'd been betrayed. Mm-hmm. And so we spent probably the next two weeks sitting down Myself and the new owners, which were 
were great through the process and just talking through the whole thing around just helping them understand what the process was going to be, why I did it, you know, those kind of things. And they understood, but they still felt betrayed mm -hmm. because they wanted it to go on forever, I think. The risk didn't change. Yeah. And I, and I think I had learned when I was at G&K, there was a period of time where I was a general manager to where we were the top in every category in the international company. Most profit, highest growth, highest sales, highest route sales, all that kind of stuff. And it was fun. I still see those people today. That was 20 years ago. But I've been so blessed to have two times in my life to where that happened, to where you had everybody feeling really, really good about what was happening at work. And having that happen for, you know, a two or three year period. And the hardest thing about it is it just doesn't last forever, you know? Yeah, there's and, a time. Yeah. There's there, a time. There's a time where it changes in some way, shape, or form. People get older, retire. Yeah, you either do it on purpose or it's forced on you. Yeah. It's one of those tough realities in business that... So going forward, you know, to shift gears a little bit, so you're full-time with Aspenwood. I am. I am. Working out of my house, but full-time, as a matter of speaking. So are you going to take and uh, come have some social events for Aspenwood here? Probably. BAC? I think yeah. that's all. And I'll probably come back and crash some parties at BAC <laughs> as well. <laughs> they have good food, I hear. Yeah, they told me I could. So, you know, I'm not going to miss out on that invitation. So. Ken, you know, I, I appreciate sincerely you taking the time. If there's a shout out to anybody that you want to say hello or thanks or that were influential in, in your career or a mentor or you know, and anything else you got on mind that we didn't cover? Well, I can tell you that your people are your lifeblood of your business. And I have great people. And they were just amazing. And I couldn't have done anything that I ever did without the people around me. That said, I would also tell you that when I asked for help during the recession from my vendors, from my people that just did things that I had no expectation of, but I asked. It's a strength to ask for help. You know, I think, like we talked about earlier, all I can say is no. Yeah. I mean, and you're not any worse off. Right. You know, I right. think that's awesome. But well, to, to close, I would say that I'd always heard that nice guys finish last, and I've proved that wrong. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. We'll call it good. All right. Thank Thanks. you, Bob. Thanks, Ken.